namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sangam Namasami Many of us may feel that we've made decisions that we regret deeply. We've acted on insufficient knowledge. We were not in a place. We were not guided. We didn't have the, the leadership, the training, the advice, the counsel, the resources to decide any differently. Now we know that to unnaturally end a life, our own or someone else's, even if it's legal. Suicide is not, I don't think it's legal, but you don't get punished for it in this realm. But the karma of it carries on, and we have to face that. It's really important for us to use our own wisdom and discern, even though we're allowed to do these things, and we're obeying the law. This is, there are laws put into place now that enable these kind of decisions to be carried out. But, of course, karmically, we know better. Things have been done, and things have not been done. And so, we have to come to forgiveness. But, how to forgive ourselves we're not here to thrash ourselves. This is not helpful. In fact, one of the practices that I, I gave a few days ago specifically mentions that we should not indulge or repeat and allow ourselves to dwell in unwholesome states of mind, which are unsuitable, which are even dangerous. Because you could spend your whole life grieving over these things, but they're dead. The, the actions, the decisions, the situations, they're gone. The past is gone, it's dead, there's nothing we can do to change it. But by holding on to it, and beating ourselves up, there's no one to beat up, there's no one that died. These, these are realizations that we have to come to. Yes, the body withered away, a karma may have been artificially shortened, but that person is not responsible for that, and we take responsibility, and then we forgive ourselves, and that gives us the strength to determine that we won't do those things again. That's what moral shame, it's called, or moral compunction, is about. And then it becomes 
just having that knowledge, having that realization, having that awareness that this was not a skillful choice, then we don't repeat it. In, in the monastic life, we make a lot of mistakes. And our Vinaya, our code of discipline, is designed. It is designed. It is built on. It relies on. The pillar of it, the foundation of it, is that act of acknowledging our unskillfulness regularly to each other twice a month and forgiving. Acknowledging and forgiving. Confessing. Now, confession is a word that's been tainted by other traditions, but this is not my problem. <laughs> we, we use confession and it's, it's really hard, you know, to sit in front of someone else and say, I've broken this rule and I broke that rule. I did that three times in that one in the last two weeks. That's basically what we do. But these are usually, they're pretty minor rules, but some of them can be quite embarrassing. I won't go into it. <laughs> and, and you feel ashamed. But then your sister or if you're monk, your brother, very kindly says to you, do you see, Venerable Sister, do you see? Yes, yes, Venerable, I see. Well then, restrain yourself in the future. Refrain from repeating this. That's the gist of it. I will be restrained. And then you, you're totally forgiven. You start all over. It's just a breathtaking system. And then, little by little, with mindfulness, you stop. You don't break live branches off trees. You're more careful when you do these things. Oh, well, you were just clearing the path, but then you see that. Oh, that was a living thing. I'm not supposed to break living things off what they're living from. And you might think, that's trivial. Yes, it might seem trivial on one level, but it's through these details, through taking, like th cleaning the floor in a complete way is a reflection of how we clean the mind. This is why Zen training is so powerful, because they're very, very astute, very diligent, and quite perfectionist, I would say. And there's a place for that. Because if we didn't take so much care, how would we learn? And it's quite difficult living in community. There's, there's a lot to take care of, our robes, our bowls, cleaning up after each other. We get assigned to clean in certain areas, and often it's an area we didn't work in. We have to clean somebody else's lack of mindfulness. And then we watch our reactivity to that. How come critical mind? And then we see the poison. Oh. Now we don't have to confess that, but we see our own minds by engaging in these tasks in a very disciplined and repeated fashion and not having not doing our favorite thing. We just we share the work. So you don't always get to do your favorite work. Everyone shares in everything cleaning toilets, washing dishes, picking up tools. We use grease around the, the, the meditation huts 
to prevent the carpenter ants from getting in, and it smells very bad. It's some car grease, engine grease. But the ants don't like it, so it's very effective. But then after a few weeks, it doesn't work anymore, so you have to scrape it off and put on another layer. It's a disgusting job, really. And it gets all over your robes, and then you can't get it off. And you have to use all kinds of solvents, which are very powerful and unpleasant, and, and you know, don't smell good, and so forth. But we all have to do these things just to keep the place usable and friendly, user-friendly. And we do it, we try to do it with a good attitude. So even these minor actions, done well, done with attentiveness, done caringly, mindfully, like it's a sanctuary, it's a sacred ground. But every action that we do is sacred. That's why in a Zen monastery or a Zen retreat center, you see that every little, every nuance of every room is cared for so beautifully. It's just a pleasure to come in and practice here. It's a reflection of how we want to care for our own minds. So forgiveness plays a big role in this, because if we walk around thrashing ourselves for past deeds, then we're not able to forgive ourselves and let go all of that and focus on what we're doing now and do that properly, do that suitably, do that well, do that with, with dedication, with attention, with diligence and vigilance, with energy, with effort, with joy, with gratitude and feel content at the end of the morning. I did a good job. I harmed no one. I, I used what was given. I haven't taken anything that wasn't given. We review our precepts day by day, and we feel the joy of keeping what we've kept and repairing what we break. It's a repair job. So in life, we don't have these rituals. And so the, the breaks that we commit are not repaired. And the, the heaviness of the heart that we carry around, it, it's illogical. It, it's not even humane for us to do that. But we haven't been taught how to practice compassion for ourselves. So then when we learn that, we can just review and the meditation inevitably will open up everything in our life will, will unroll in front of us and we have to face it. It's a beautiful thing. You might recoil, but then you, you see, well, back then I just didn't know. So now I know. Then you forgive yourself. You actively forgive and you're doing something so powerfully purifying to the heart that the, the most gracious and compassionate act is just to completely forgive that and begin again. Knowing that's not the path, that's not the way. Now you're on the path. You're a path finder, a path restorer, a path repairer. Day by day we, we repair what has been broken and as we go deeper and deeper, we can repair old hurts, old conflicts. 
Now, the people that we may have hurt or have hurt us, the conflicts we may have been engaged in, the unskillful karma that we may have done, um, we might not be able to go back to those people and say, I forgive you, by the way, or um, ask them to forgive us. But we categorically forgive them. Even if they don't forgive us, we take the initiative. We don't have to write to them, report to them, and if they're dead, we just categorically, unconditionally, unequivocally, I should say, forgive them. Because it's so healing. It's, it just gives us the strength of a Dhamma warrior. This path is just for that. It's to purify, to purify old kama and to create new, good new kama. So in the holy life, there are rules that cannot be, if they're broken, they cannot be so easily forgiven. Some of them are of a heavier weight. And if that happens, there has to be a meeting of the community of bhikkhunis to hear the offense and to review what is the appropriate action to take. And the Buddha gave very specific instructions about how to decide in such matters. And then there are rules which, if they're broken, you are disqualified from your role as a nun, as a monastic. And it doesn't mean, I said this earlier to one of the groups, it doesn't mean that you're, you're evil. It just means that this profession, this form of dedication to purification is not suitable. We can't contain it. We, we're not able in this lifetime to hold that container. We can't restrain our minds enough to follow those very grave, those heavy rules. So if you kill, intentionally kill a human being, that's it. You're just disqualified. That's a very basic grave rule. And there are a few rules like that. That's why if a woman comes to me and asks and says, I'm pregnant, I want to have an abortion, and I even give a suggestion to her that it's okay, and she carries it out, that's like participating in killing, in the destruction of life, human life. That's how serious, and we have to be so careful what kind of advice we give people. Yeah, it's, it's a system of training. So forgiveness is paramount, and it's such a generosity. That means that you can be a good householder, and you can repair the breaks that you've caused. There are many forms of giving, and that's a, such a kindness, to give people a chance, another chance. Now, there are times when forgiveness doesn't mean that just because you forgive, that you then become buddies with that person. Again, that person that betrayed you, can't tell the truth, has a messy morality, doesn't keep precepts, isn't true. 
lies, cheats, etc., or violates your ways of living, violates your boundaries, is abusive. You cannot keep, you can forgive their inability to do that, but then you draw a line, you don't go and live with them. You stay away from people like that. This is the Buddha's advice. We have to hold the whole package of his advice and not take one thing out of context. Not be so naive and forgiving everyone and then enable them to do very unskillful things at the price of your well-being. No. We have to be wise. We have to navigate a path of safety for ourselves and for those that are near to us and dear to us. And that means also that you're not an enabler of other people's moral infringements. You just say, stop, like a red light. A traffic light, when it says stop, you stop. Put up the stop sign. So that's really how important forgiveness is. And then this kind of generosity, uh, sometimes it requires incredible patience. You could say, I forgive you, or I forgive that person. You could say, I forgive myself. But then the next time you do something that you feel is really unwise, you you become really self-critical or critical to someone else. And that could be just the strong habit energy of the mind to go to that. You get very enraged or angry or impatient, irritated, annoyed. Stomp your feet. Give up. That's not a Dhamma warrior. So there are many qualities that true forgiveness can help us cultivate. And patient endurance is one of them. So we have to be patient with our mental habits and slowly, slowly cull the ill will, the critical mind, the judgments, the pejoratives, the I, I'm no good, I'm this, I'm the blah, blah, on and on, the me and the mine. We have to develop our wisdom and see through what we're creating. We're creating the monster that prevents us from walking the path with clarity, with gentleness, with ease, with joy, with freedom. We put ourselves in a prison. Anger, it's like a jail. It's not a good place. We want to free ourselves from that. So that's why mindfulness is reliable. Right mindfulness, not wrong mindfulness. Wrong mindfulness is very head-based. But right mindfulness is paying proper attention here and now to this moment and remembering what supports the good in us, remembering our precepts, uh, remembering to take care, to see with wisdom, to hold the the whole context of what we're working in, not to stray beyond what is proper or suitable in that context. So there are times, for example, a small example, when you go back to daily life and you you think you're practicing mindfulness and you're in a busy shopping center and you're standing in line to pay or you're going down the aisle very slowly with your cart 
And there's a lot of people trying to, but you're going very slowly. Lifting, pushing, placing, pushing this little cart. And people behind you are getting impatient. You're using a speed that is not appropriate to the situation. So save your slow walking for a time when you're alone or on an empty part of the sidewalk where there's no one around. Many times I've taught retreats in somewhere in, in the city and the retreatants walk around the building on the sidewalks walking very slowly and everyone's looking and staring and the owners of the building that we're renting from are worried because everyone's wondering what kind of people they have staying there. <laughs> that they want to call the police. <laughs> I think we're all a little bit cra crazy or, or something. Something is wrong. It can be frightening. So we don't... We have to think, think of time and place. What is suitable? What is suitable for the, the resort that we're in? Where we're abiding for that abiding? And if you're in a crowded bus, your stop comes, and everyone is crushing to get out, you don't slowly descend from the bus. <laughs> because you could create a stampede and, and die right there, or kill someone. Someone else could get injured. It's just to be very aware of where you are and what's appropriate. Be wise, be intuitive, be creative with this practice. Don't think just because the Buddha said many things and he gave different instructions at different times to different people, depending on the place, the time, and who, who was listening and who was not. Sometimes he was very... Somebody asked, is there any humor in Buddhism? He taught the most joyful things in the world, the most amazing states of bliss and happiness and peace. And humor, for its own sake, is useless. Just to gain attention or for entertainment, one who is wise goes beyond that kind of humor. But there's a lot that we can, we can laugh at ourselves when we do silly things. And we can laugh together to help raise each other up and to keep going. Oh, because somebody handed us a cup of coffee there was one of the Anagarikas went out for a coffee and she was looking forward to this all week. So then she comes to the coffee shop, she sits down and the waitress brings her this black coffee and then she said, you know, we have cream, we have extra cream. And then she put the cream in and then suddenly she realized it was afternoon. We don't drink cream. So, she didn't explain anything to the waitress. She just picked up the coffee, walked out, and poured it on the sidewalk. Yeah, she let go. She renounced her pleasure to do that. And a very a good sign for somebody that wants to live a life that requires a lot of restraint. Because if she had drunk it, then she'd be breaking a rule and have to confess. It's not an ethical rule, it's just a restraint. We have to give up a lot to learn how to restrain, and then we feel good when we're restrained, and then it becomes more natural. The more you do 
something like that, the more you restrain the mind. Somebody on the retreat was describing a very, I was, I felt such mudita, such joy for uh, what she had figured out on her own. Standing in line and feeling the greed for the meal come up, and then deciding that to counter that greed and help restrain it, instead of pushing to get faster to the food counter, she went to the end of the line. That was so beautiful. You know, being creative so that we can teach ourselves how to counter the, the rush and the current of old habits. This is a, these are very valuable things to figure out. Instead of just, well, I'll, I'll get there first, or I'll get somebody to save my place. Instead of strategizing how to satisfy our greed, we figure out ways to work against it. Gentle ways. Not crushing. Not damaging ourselves. Not trying to do it all in one night. Not struggling and straining and hurting ourselves, but gently. This, because it's a gradual training. It is. It's like the ocean slopes, inclines, and gently reaches the depths. And so when we walk into the water, to, we start, if we're baby swimmers, we, we don't go to the depths right away. We wait until we've developed the skill to swim. And then when our stroke gets stronger and stronger, like I mentioned about the little toddler, that first crawls and then gets up and holds on to things, holds on to mummy, holds on to a table, then holds on to the wall, and suddenly you see them walking on their own, and then they can walk very far, and, and then walk across a continent, and then walk up a tall mountain, and then walk the Eightfold Noble Path. That's even harder. That's the hardest walk of all. And then when you get old, look what nature does. You start walking with a stick, and you need a walker, and you need a wheelchair, and you can't walk anymore. You just sit in a chair. You can't even use your legs. But that doesn't matter, because we have enough wisdom. We've developed enough strength. We've developed enough restraint. We've developed enough courage and fearlessness to stand in front of the current of our addictions and let them go, let them fall, not pick them up, not put them into action. We stop, we cut, we direct our energy to, that, to the climb, to the ascent, to safety. And it, it is, it's an ascent because it takes that extra effort that extra courage, that extra yes. We affirm to ourselves, we determine. This is what one of the paramitas is the resolve, that we make a resolution. It was so lovely to hear about your son taking the first step to recovery. We're all recovering addicts here, all of us. We're addicted to our greed, our ill will, our delusion. And with, 
we can't just drop it like that. We need help. We need each other. We need community. We need the Buddha. We need the truth shining in front of us. We need inspiration. We need counseling. We need therapy. We need people to tell us now, this is what you've done. But do you see? Yes, I see. I see. Okay, keep going. Try again. Okay, I'll keep going. I'll try again. So we find somebody to confide in and say, I really messed up. And help you. they'll help you forgive yourself and start over. Because this path requires beginning again every single day. It's that kind of patience that is so heroic, but it's so powerful because it is the incinerator of all defilements. You just be patient enough to see, acknowledge, evade, not repeat, choose what is better, choose the the right way, the good way, the pure, the path of purification, and walk in nobility and dignity, raising, raising ourselves up, raising each other up. And then we have such joy. That's the joy we need to keep going on this path. It's a joy like no other. It's so pure, and it gives us energy. It's the source of an, an, a wellspring of strength. Even in old age, we can still do this because the joy of the heart supersedes the strength of the body. You can do things that younger people can't do. Younger people have very often the, the vanity of youth, which is a real detriment. Because many times when we're very young, we think we know everything. And you come with a full cup. If you come with a full cup in front of the teacher, what can you learn? I did that when I came in front of my teacher. I had a whole list of questions. I, I remember coming in, this was in India, about 47 years ago. I come in and bow, and he's sitting there. And I, I, I thought I detected a bit of a smirk. Because, you know, we must look really funny to people that are awake or enlightened. And I had all these questions. And the other devotees had told Baba that I, this is the, the foreigner, she's got questions. So I'm sitting there kind of waiting for him to say, okay, what's your question? And then he did. He asked me, what's my question? And my mind went completely blank. I couldn't think of anything. I felt so stupid. And then he laughed. And he, he told me, to, he said, okay, get out. But it was very fatherly. It was very loving. And I realized the reason that my mind went so blank is because the emptiness of his presence infused me. The peace of his love just bathed my spirit. 
and all the questions, all the thinking, had no place there. It just fell away. It was magical. And I was so glad to get out of there. <laughs> just so that, I, because I was, I was vibrating with it. It was so powerful. Such a powerful thing. That unconditional love. I felt foolish and yet completely acceptable. Because I was young and vain. And I had to look at that. And, and then I realized, you want to come to the teacher and learn, you have to come with an empty cup, a heart that is open and humbly. Just, I have no question, just tell me what I need to know. Because he knew what I needed to know. So, I wanted to be a nun right away, but there were no conditions there. And it took me a long time a long time after that, to find the right conditions. But then when I found them, it was so instant. It was, I just fell like a leaf in autumn, falls from a tree, ready. Or when the fruit is, is ripe, you, you don't have to pull it. it just, I just fell in to this. But uh, whatever, Wherever we are, whatever station we're in in our life, that is, that's our monastery, that's our temple, that's our sanctuary, that's our sacred ground. And the Buddha established the fourfold Sangha, the fourfold Parisa, a community which has four pillars in it. Monks, nuns, laymen, Lay women, not threefold, not twofold, not onefold, fourfold. So remember this that you are a part of a field of merit, a field of goodness. And really, to enter into that field, we have to develop certain qualities before we can work in it. We can't come in sloppy, heedless, ungrateful. Uh, disturbing the peace kind of energy. We have to be respectful and pick up some, some virtue, establish ourselves in some precepts so that we can restrain properly, so that we can follow the course and open the doors that this kind of path can open for us. Otherwise, it's futile. How can we be full members of this kind of assembly? if we don't act according to what will support the truth in us. So then we see the value of forgiving the past, letting go of the past, letting go of what's dead, and practicing being awake here and now, and emptying out the rubbish, little by little, gradually, patiently, mothering and fathering our own being with unconditional acceptance and lovingness, with compassion. Yeah, we all make mistakes, but now we have a path, we have a teacher, we have a guide, the Buddha. He is alive, he is present through his teaching, through his disciples, through the scriptures that we can read and study and understand within us deeply, through our practice. We have all 
the tools we need to climb this ascend, this winding path. Sometimes we feel like we're crossing a flood, but it is the middle way. Uh, we can cross it. We give up greed, anger, hostility, sloppiness. We give up our anxieties, our attachment to all the negativity that we've been holding. Our, our so many kinds of addiction. Not just to material things, but to comforting ourselves and or being lazy. We learn how to put more energy in. We learn to be very zen about how we live and how we practice. We learn to be so thoughtful, so caring. It, and we can always improve. We can always polish until the gem of the Dhamma shines within us. There's work to be done and we take it up with gratitude and a sense of joy, a sense of how blessed we are. And in that way, the blessings increase for everyone. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.